Last week we uh, started with uh, James 1. We actually started a couple of weeks ago as far as like the background of it and whatnot, but got into the meat of James 1 last week. And um, just as a quick quick review about some of the, uh, the themes that, and the perspectives that we're looking at James from, the book of James is a second commandment letter, right? James is uh, emphasizing and looking at this commandment of love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? And so we spent a good amount of time talking about sonship because Jesus tells us how to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, um, which doesn't mean that you... Uh, you know, you, you just sit there and, and gaze at yourself all day. It does mean that you see yourself the way God does. That's what it means to love yourself, to see yourself as God does. Two things to remember about James. First of all, you should not read James through the eyes of Paul. You should read James through the eyes of Jesus, right? There does not need to be a sort of James is a real jerk, Paul's not a jerk, and these two balance each other out somehow. That's not at all the case. Now, the one of these guys is jerk or weak is that they have different perspectives, and these perspectives are absolutely necessary to what it means for us to be who it is that God made us to be. James thinks through the eyes and the teachings of Jesus. James is the first book in the New Testament that was written. And his major point that he makes at the Jerusalem Council forms the theme by which we understand James. This part here, right? James says, after this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, right? And I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. This is James, these are the glasses that James wears by which he sees his ministry to the church, by which he sees his work as an apostle. Through the, is, this is his big theme. This idea of a restoration of a house of worship. And he sees the church as being that house. Everybody get that? That's key. James' theme for his whole life, his whole ministry, is this restoration of a house of worship. And the church is that house. Which is why he speaks so boldly and plainly to the people in his epistle. Because he is about the church becoming the church. About the church being who she is meant to be. Not being what the world's trying to shape her to be, not being what they think that they ought to be, but receiving from Christ through his teachings and this instruction to the people what it means for them to be them in this context. Right? James is all about the rebuilding of a house of worship. And he starts by saying, look, you're getting torn down. I understand that. You're having a hard time. You're under a lot of trials. But rather than look at your trials, look through your trials. Look to see what it is that God is doing. And he just answers their, their supposed question, which is, how do I look through my trials? Well, you need wisdom for that. I don't have wisdom for that, James. Well, then ask God. If you ask God for wisdom, he gives liberally. And keep asking. Right? Stay before him. And God will meet you where it is that you need to go. The people that James is writing to are asking the same question that you and I often ask when we go through trial, which is, is God always good? When my heart's breaking, when my mind is confused, when my spirit feels completely in despair, like in the place that I don't feel like God is present, is God good? And his answer is, yes, absolutely. Absolutely God is good. God is good in that he is God. And as you walk through trials receiving his wisdom, what you receive then is, is not ways and practical, you know, one, two, three steps for you to walk out this trial, but rather you receive his perspective. Right? Peace is not the absence of turmoil. Peace is the presence of God. Right? Peace is not the fact that your boat's never in a storm. It's that in the storm, Jesus is in the boat. And he's so calm about it that he's asleep in the front. Right? Right? Jesus is the one that can walk on the waters and the one that calls us to do the same. Like This is... This is who he is, and this is what it means to receive wisdom from God, to walk through what it is that God calls us to. James points to God's goodness as this. We, the first fruits of his creation, right? And he's not just talking about humans. He's talking about the church, who God has made his people to be, how he has called us, who he is forming us as, right? Not a bunch of buildings and a bunch of different geographical locations, but a people, Chosen, called out, named for his own. Right? This is the God that we serve. You can see this. Look at your text at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so God is good, and he gives good gifts to his children. And everything good that we have comes from God. And the very fact that you and I are part of the family of God, that you and I are part of the house of God, the, part, the, the, the idea that you, we have been included and called into and given grace and mercy to walk with God in who he is and what he's doing, right? That's the key. That's a beautiful thing. So that's where we've been, right? That was, that was a quick review. We're going to step into a second part. Before I step into the second part, uh, I just saw Angie there in the back. And so we want to welcome uh, Ezekiel Joseph, right? Yeah, Angie had her baby this week. So, uh, actually, two weeks ago. So we rejoice with Angie and Bonchi, and um, thank God for, uh, for Ezekiel and for uh, who he is and for his part in our family. Continuing in James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray together. God, thank you for James chapter 1. Thank you for these uh, verses, this portion that we'll be looking at today. Um, God, we want to receive your mind. We want to receive your heart. We want to know your ways and what it is that you have to teach us today from James 1. So we open our hearts to you. We open our minds to you. We give, us, um, give us understanding, God. Give us insight. You know, like you already told us in James 1. Um, give us wisdom. We lack and you have. So we ask for you to, to give that to us into the portion and need that we each, you know, need to walk in it. Yeah, thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 1, right? James chapter 1, verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 19, begins a very, very familiar portion of Scripture. Um, It's one of those portions of Scripture that if you've been in the church for any amount of time, then, uh, you know, you've probably heard this. And if you haven't been in the church for very long, um, this is probably a bad characterization of what the church has probably been presented to you to be, right? Uh, what we're about to step into is what I, is, I think one of the more like lowly understood portions in Scripture. How many of you have ever heard a sermon about be doer of the word and not just a hearer, right? How many of you have ever heard a sermon about faith without works is dead? Okay, good. This is how I've received these texts in, in my religious history, right? Um, which is that Look, here's the Bible, and the Bible says a lot of stuff about how you should live your life. And the Bible also says a lot of really good stuff about who God is, and that God loves you, and that God wants peace and joy for you. But you'll never experience any of that stuff unless you take the faith that you say that you believe and put it into action in your life. Right? Because you shouldn't just be a hearer of the word, you should be a doer. And faith without works is dead. And so what you need to do is stop talking the talk and start walking the walk. I mean, pretty much every, like, youth group conference I ever went to had this in it, you know? We're screaming at a bunch of teenagers that you're ingenuine, inauthentic children of God, and you need to get out there, and you need to change the world, and you need to change your school. We're talking to teenagers here, right, who are just trying to figure life out, you know? Heck, I did this as a youth pastor, and I still feel really bad about it. You know, the... uh, (laughs) This is insane, right? And then when we get to be adults, it becomes sort of like um, we, we pull it back, right? We tend to tell young people, give everything to God. Give it all. Like, you know, like 
get, just jump in with both feet, you know, jump in the deep end. And if it doesn't matter, if you don't know how to swim, that's fine. You'll figure it out, you know. But at least you'll be a doer of the word, not sitting on the side of the pool, just dabbing your feet in the water. It's a real illustration that I actually remember from when I was a kid. Um, you know, I've heard it where you you're, don't sit on the bench, get in the game, right? That's another big one. Like, uh, uh, it doesn't matter. You can sit there and watch basketball all day long, but until you actually go out and play it, then you'll be a crappy basketball player. So on and so forth. We could do this all day. If you want to hear a sermon about being a, a doer of the word, that's cool. That's cool. And honestly, like, uh, maybe at some point I'll preach on that, but that day is not today. Um, I, I don't want to ignore the text. I want to talk about doing, but I want to talk about it in a better way. If you want to hear a sermon about, you know, like, like, be a doer of a word, not a hearer only, like, from that vantage point, and frankly, obedience is great. Count me in, you know? Like, I'm not saying that God should give us commands and we should, you know, think about it. Uh, no, God's God and we should do what he says all the time. Obedience for the sake of obedience is always, is always a good move. Um, you know, but, go, you know, Google it. Like, good sermons about doing the word. You'll find some good stuff on there, uh, I'm sure. I want to look at this from a different perspective. Because... I think that this whole hearing versus doing thing is a whole lot more introspective and a deep part of who we are as Christians and who we are as the church than just simply like, like, come on already. James is not saying to the church here, like, come on already. Right? You've heard the word so many times. When is your life going to reflect it? Now, he's speaking to a people that he loves I mean, he loves them so much that he, uh, yeah, he does speak to them very, very urgently. He does speak to them um, very, very straightforwardly, right? But what he is not doing is guilt-tripping them, right? He is not guilt-tripping them, and he is not shaming them because they are missing some kind of a mark that James wishes that they could attain to, which is the definition of shame, by the way, right? Shame is to miss someone's mark, yours, God's, or someone else's standard, right? He's not doing that. I think what he is very concerned about, though, is, is the bigger concept that I want to approach this text from today because it repeats itself three times in about, like, ten verses. And it just really sticks out to me, which is the concept of self-deceit. I think that this whole, if you take, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, and if you take that away from the uh, stop talking the talk and start walking the walk kind of a paradigm, if you pull it back, and just let it stand on its own in the flow of the text, what you'll see in and through all of these things about be a, hearer, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, what you'll see is that self-deceit is woven throughout this. And uh, self-deceit, I think, is the key to understanding this more than get out there and be busier, work harder. Which is, I think, what a lot of us hear, right? And what a lot of, what a lot of us have, have, have experienced when it comes to our time in, in, in the church which is somebody telling you to go out and work harder, right? Jesus died for you, right? And, and he loves you, and he saved you. Like, so you should serve him. So go out there and work harder, and work harder. And if you sin and you fall, bummer, you know? There's forgiveness if you feel really bad about it and repent from it, and then get out there and work harder. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of working harder. I'm pretty sure that Jesus is the one that says, stop working and come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and meek, right? and you will find rest for your souls. Folks, a calling from God is an invitation to victorious participation in the kingdom. God does not need us. Right? The kingdom of God does not rely on our works. The kingdom of God relies on his son. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And the kingdom is forever established. And the enemy ha not, has fallen right? and continues to fall as the people of God stand in who it is that God made us to be, which is victorious participators in the kingdom of God. Right? But with this whole like spiritual guilt trip that we oftentimes... Uh, receive is something that we need to walk away from and understand that at its core, at its core, what James is getting at here is a people not who do all the right things. What James is advocating for in his book, starting in verse 19 particularly, all the way through chapter 2, 
What he's advocating for is a people, listen, a people who are whole. Right? A people who are whole. What James is very concerned about is the people of God living their lives fragmented and fractured and compartmentalized. Right? Where over in this section of my life, I think like this. And about myself, I live like this. And toward my friends, I engage this. And at my school, I become this. Right? And with my wife, I present myself like this. And with my kids, like this. And in front of my church friends, then I'm this. And I think about God differently over here than I think about him over here. And I think about myself differently over here than I do over here. Right? And I feel fine when I'm hanging out with my family on just a normal day, but put it in the context of a holiday dinner, and I'm suddenly full of fear. Right? And I feel great about the fact that I'm okay at home, but then when I enter my, my school, <laughs> you know, I've got to become something else. Right? Or at work, I'm all about you know, other people because my job requires that of me. I go home, and I just want everybody to shut up. Right? I present myself as being someone who has a relationship with God that I value. But in my own mind is just controlled by fear. And I don't know that God really loves me. You can take James, the end of James 1 and James chapter 2, and you can just simply build a facade construct whereby you live your life looking a certain way and being a certain thing and never actually being a whole person. God's, God's intent for you is wholeness. When Jesus says, come and I will give you rest, he's talking about shalom, peace, where everything is confidently at rest in God. And that's what James is most worried about. In his book, James is worried about fractured Christians fragmented Christians. People who live their lives one way over here when I'm with my rich friends, I act like this, bring a poor person into the situation, and now what am I going to do? Right? That's a real illustration we'll come up on in James 2. So James starts off here in verse 18, right? Talking about self-deceit. Not, not 18. It's earlier than that. 16. He starts off with this idea of, of deceit. Do not be deceived, brothers. He tells them in verse 16. He repeats the theme in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. Note, yourselves. This is about self-deceit. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his own tongue, but does what? Deceives his own heart. Right? This, this theme of deceit and self-deceit is woven throughout James 1 and gives us a much better context for how James thinks about it. He doesn't just want people to be busy and working harder. James wants people to be walking in the truth. James wants the church to be absolutely congruent and authentic and genuine and real with who God actually made them to be. That's his heart for them. And he speaks it very plainly, which I don't know about you, but I appreciate, particularly as somebody from the East Coast. Like, just tell it to me like it is, please. We don't need to dance around the issue, right? If I stink, you should say so. I'll put on deodorant. You know, like, it's that kind of a thing. You know, like, let's, let's speak plainly, which I just so appreciate from James. And that's what he does. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, you know what anger generally does produce? Anger generally produces two things, harmful words and harmful actions. Right? Right? Anger produces two things, harmful words and harmful actions. The most regretful things I've ever said in my life have been said in anger. I heard this story. I have no idea if it's true or not, but it's a nice illustration. About... Uh, this uh, family had a, had a young son. The kid was like, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. And um, the grandmother got sick and came to live with them. And the medicine that she was on um, gave her body a foul odor. Right? And this boy was complaining to his parents once, not knowing his grandmother was in the next room, saying, you know, I hate this. She stinks. 
And so uh, then they heard a rustle in the next room, you know, as the grandmother excused herself, and the boy realized what, it done, what he'd done, you know. And he felt terrible about it, just like I think any of us would. He felt terrible about it. He went to his grandmother, and he apologized. And she received his apology, but then asked him if he wanted to learn something. And he said, yeah. And so she took a pillow and a steak knife and said, come outside. And she cut this pillow open, and it was a down pillow, so it had all those little feathers in it. And she took a handful of feathers, and she threw them out in, in the air, and the wind sort of blew them all away. And she said to, the son, to, to, the, to her grandson, now go, go get them all and put them back in the pillow. And, and, you know, there's little tiny little down feathers all over the place. Some of them are still floating, you know, and he's like, he's like I can't do that. And she was like, yeah, that's, that's right. Like, that's, that's, a, that, that, that's what, you know, unwise words are like that. They go, and, and, and you want to take them back, but they're gone, right? And I think we've all had hurtful situations like this where we said something that we wish we didn't say sometimes in anger. James immediately, right? This is, again, this is that he doesn't want them living fractured. He doesn't want them speaking to one another unwisely. And he comes back to this in chapter 3. He doesn't want them walking in anger toward one another. Right? One of the best things that you can ever do in life, when I had a mentor tell me this when I was, I don't know, I was a young pastor, I was like 23 or 24. He was like, Jay, one of the smartest things I can ever tell you to do is shut up. And I was like, ow. And he's like, no, no, not, not you personally. Like, just across the board, humans should just shut up. If we could just be quiet and listen, and really listen to God, to one another, we could learn so much more. We would be so much more at rest with one another. He's like, here's a great pastoral lesson. Shut your mouth. You know, listen, listen. Be quick to hear, right? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, right? The implanted word is the gospel, right? The gospel is a seed, right? It grows, it bears fruit, it is birthed within you through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? James is saying to receive that, to receive that, to walk in it, to make that your posture, the implanted word that God has put within you, his gospel, his truth, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again for our sins, right? Put that in you and receive it. Live from that spot. Be there. And he tells them, and he tells them next, but don't stop there, but go and be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. All right. So, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves which we can take that, just basic grammatically, and flip it around and say, if you only hear the word and don't do it, then you're deceived. Right? So let's flip it around again, which means just simply that if you just go and be busy and be a doer, then that means that you're hearing the word and everything's cool. But that's not the case. Right? That's not the case. That's not the case at all. I, I think we all know and have experienced ourselves and know people who are all about being busy for Jesus and who receive no true wholeness in their lives, who still live compartmentalized, who still live fractured, who still live broken up. And self-deceit seems to me to be a key theme that is being woven in and through this. To be a hearer of the word and a doer only is to, relieve, is, is to, is to um, live in self-deceit. To be a doer of the word but to not be transformed by the word, to not receive the implanted word that's been put within you, is just as much self-deceit. Right? What James is very concerned about is that the people of God are living in truth, are living in wholeness. What he's very worried about is that they're going to be deceived and not going to be deceived by outward things. He's not talking about the world deceiving them or the enemy deceiving them. He's talking about themselves deceiving them. Which it's just really interesting. Have you ever deceived yourself before? Have you ever lied to yourself? I mean, I mean I, 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 hopefully we can all be honest and say that we've done that. Where we told ourselves one thing, you know, and, and something else was, something completely else was true. And it can be something that, you know, that we, uh, 
You know, it could be something that, that is like really, really basic or it could be something really, really dirty and nasty. I was going to tell an illustration there, but I'm not going to. So that's what I was, that, was, that was my hiccup in my thought process. I'll come around back to it. I want to talk about self-deceit first. Uh, can you activate that screen, please? Or go to the next slide for me. Either one. doesn't matter to me. Use the right, right arrow, please. Hello? Thanks. Okay. Let's go back to our sin construct. This is from the life of David. Um, we taught through this uh, last year and built a sin construct that David continually engages and interacts with. Um, we all have issues with shame, right? I'm sorry, we all have issues with sin. Sin produces one of two results. Sin produces guilt, and sin produces shame. Guilt is the legal result of sin, right? It is a, it is a transgression. It is a stepping over a boundary, right? Shame is the emotional result of sin, Thanks. Shame's the emotional result of sin. When I sin, I feel something. I'm supposed to feel something. I am meant to feel something. Right? Uh, shame is a missing of the mark. Right? So when I sin, I have transgressed God. Right? When I commit sin, I have committed iniquity before God. Right? And these two things line themselves out with the two attacks of the enemy that the enemy brings to us, which is deceit and accusation. Right, the enemy has two tools at his work. Deceit is to try and get you to believe wrong things about God. Accusation is to get you to believe wrong things about yourself. Either way, you're living in untruth. Either way, you are not solid. Now, you are now fractured. Right? You are now compartmentalized. You are over here. Sin is over here. Oh, cool. Thanks. Nice work. The spiritual, the spiritual remedy for, uh, for guilt is forgiveness. The spiritual remedy for shame is righteousness. And we saw this in David all the time, right? Where David could easily receive the legal forgiveness. That's what Psalm 51 is. That's what Psalm 32 is. It is, it is I have committed guilt before you. What we never see David overcome is shame, which is how Absalom happens. And that whole story goes down because David can't enact righteousness on his own part. So these, these, this thing plays itself out. I want to focus on the left side, on the left side of the screen. All right? Here we have sin, and we have this continuum, right, where deceit is what the enemy uses to try and get you to commit transgression, to step over the line of who God is. Guilt is the legal result of sin. All right? Forgiveness is what God gives to you as a result of, um, as a result of that transgression. Right? We call that justification. Justification is a declaration of righteousness, right? Declaration of righteousness. Let's all say that together. Declaration of righteousness. You didn't say it very well. Say it better. Declaration of righteousness. Very good. Very good, right? Declaration of righteousness. That's justification. Deceit gets you to believe something wrong about who God is. Right? It is an untruth statement. Hey, here's something that's not false. Do you want to believe this? What did I just say? Here's something that's false. You want to believe this? Sure. Great. That's the enemy bringing deceit to me. What's even more interesting is me saying to me, here's something false. Do you want to believe this? Well, yes. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Hey, if, if you talk to your wife like this, like, she's still going to love you. Do you want to believe that? Well, yes. Yes, I do. Now, that's still true. My wife will still love me. But I have now taken love and twisted it. So now what I'm talking about isn't love anymore. I have now deceived myself into an untruth about what love is and about who my wife is. Hey, if you talk to your wife like this, that'll be all right. You've talked to her like this before, and it eventually goes away. Do you want to believe this? Yeah. Yeah, I think I do. Hey, you want to believe something bad about yourself? Here it is. You want to believe that you're greedy? Yeah, I am greedy. Right? In Christ, you're not greedy. That's not who Jesus made you to be. Your identity is not greedy. 
If you identify yourself as greedy, you know what you're going to become? Greedy. That's right, because you have deceived yourself into a truth-based statement about who you are, and now you're going to live out of that spot. I'm just a hearer of the Word, right? That's what I do. I just take it in. I love God's Word, man. I read this, and I listen to podcasts, and I listen to Christian radio, right? And I, 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 I take all kinds of good things in. I, I've studied and I've learned. My whole life I've been in church. It's all in there. I'm a good Christian, right? But my life is stagnant. Right, so here, I have an intimate relationship with Christ. But there's no feet to my relationship with Christ. So here I am, I have an intimate relationship with Christ. When in actuality, I don't have an intimate relationship with Christ. We helped the church uh, about a year ago um, that had just sort of like lost its vision. You know, this church came to us. They were like, hey, uh, we're stuck. Would you, mind, would you mind helping us? Sure, we'd be glad to help you. We go in to this place, and this is what they told us. They said, um, they said look, we're really good disciple makers, um, but we're terrible at, at evangelism. All right. Um, like, what, what, do you, what do you want from us then? You've diagnosed yourself really well. You're self-deceived. Right? And it took like three full sessions to help these folks see that you can't take the gospel and split it apart. <laughs> right? You, you, you can't take... You can't take the love that God has for people who don't know him and put it over there and the love that God has for people who do know him and put it over there and be like, you know what, we're going to be about this one. We're really bad at that. Really, no, th- this whole thing is all together. We're all in this thing together. But we're just going to deceive ourselves into believing this, right? And then when you confront the self-deceit, do you know what happens? When you, def- when you confront the self-deceit, Right? You are speaking a guilt-based statement. Right? You, 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 the truth in this situation is that you're guilty. You're guilty of believing a lie. Here's a lie that I'm giving to myself about who I am or about what I should do. I'm going to believe that. I now am taking part in, in untruth. Truth is still real. Truth is still valid. Truth is still over here. Truth, but I'm just going to take this part out and put it over here and believe this. The truth is still real. I have now fractured my life. I've now compartmentalized myself away from what's real. When I do that, that's a serious problem, right? Because I am now believing something about me. And what I believe about me, I really think is important. We all do. What you believe about you, you hold very dear to you. If you think of yourself as a strong person and someone calls you weak, you're going to react to that. If you think of yourself as an honest person and someone calls you a liar, you're going to react to that, right? I mean, am I wrong? You guys with me? Yeah. Like, like what we believe about ourselves is, is something that's very, very important to us. And it becomes very important for us in these places of self-deceit to make sure that what we believe about ourselves remains true about ourselves. And we also demand that other people believe it too, which means... That when it comes to this stuff, I step not only into self-deceit, but then I require self-justification. Right? So let's go back to the, let's go back to the thing uh, about, about me and uh, my, uh, my argument with my wife. Right? Um, this is a, a real illustration. It's real because it's happened probably about 17,000 times. Um, which might be hyperbole, but you know what I'm saying. So... My wife, who has full access to me, right? I mean, she's, she, she is my one fleshness. She has full access to me. My wife comes to me, and she says, um, she says Jay, you know, um, you felt really harsh when we were talking, when you were talking to uh, Trey, right? There you go. This, is, this has happened more than once. You felt really harsh when you were talking to Trey. My belief about myself in that situation was that I was not being harsh. My belief in my situation was that my, my tone was down and the boy was wrong. And therefore, right? <laughs> right? And therefore, this conversation is pretty cut and dry. You know? She comes to me and says, Jay, you were harsh. And uh, immediately, what, what, what's my response? Defense, right? Self-justification. What do you mean? What do you mean I was harsh, Sherry? I kept my tone soft. He knows he was wrong. 
I know he was wrong. Everything, she, and then she says, well, it wasn't what you said. It was how you brought yourself. You never asked him why he did it or how he felt about it. And I immediately launch into further defense, further self-justification. I know why he did it, <laughs> right? And I know how I feel about it. And frankly, how I feel about it isn't wrong. And here's a chapter and verse that says it's okay for me to feel that way. Right? And what have I done now? I've begun talking to her disrespectfully. I've now not only not listened to my son, but now I'm also not listening to my wife. All of this is based around self-deceit, right? That I see myself in that situation as someone who had everything worked out ahead of time, right? Which is how I do things. Like, I just, my mind can process things so quickly to the point where I get myself to a spot like, okay, I'm ready to have this conversation. I go into it, and then it goes terribly, and I can't figure out why. Right? And it's because that person was not a part of this chicka 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 process. They had their own process, which, which is more of like, la da da. And their la da da meets my chicka 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 chicka, and boom, self justification. And then it really becomes ugly when their self deceit meets my self deceit, and their self self justification meets my self justification. And here we are self justifying to one another. Is this not the story of humanity in so many ways? Right, and here we find ourselves with a bunch of people who are self-justified because we are living in self-deceit. And what we've actually done is made the enemy's work completely simple. We take the deceit that he would speak to us and speak it to ourselves, thus leading ourselves into self-justification over and over and over again. Right? And it's all based in self-deceit. And my posture toward the world around me becomes defensiveness instead of love. I mean, you read, 1 Corinthians 13 is not just a pretty poem that we read at weddings. Think about that. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not boast in itself. Love never fails. Right? Love never gives up. Love is open. Love is accessible. Love is hurtable. Our whole, like, doing versus hearing construct thing has, I think, created a bunch of defensive Christians. And we're running around defensive, not just against the world, but against one another. And we're self-deceived and self-justifying. And our self-justifications meet up against everybody else's self-justifications, and we end up living fake. Right? We end up compartmentalizing our lives where, okay, fine, if you're going to be defensive and self-justifying toward me, then I'm going to be defensive and self-justifying toward you. And we can do that in the most nice, friendly ways, right? Where, where we just agree to it. Look, in, in this spot, when we're together, this is just how it's going to be. And I think that one of the places that you can most see this is in your family. You all have relatives that you do this with, right? And I do. Where it's like a person that you've had an interaction with on a familial level that you can't get away from anyway. You know, like, like your life has to be with them on some level or another. And so rather than dealing with the self-deceit and self-justification, we just learn to live in a self-deceived place together. We join one another in our fractured, fragmented lives instead of being the whole person that God made us to be. <clears throat> James gets to this in verse 23, right? He's just finished this whole idea of... Um, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving yourselves. Now listen, verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in doing. The key is in verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. If you were to read that phrase, natural, phrase, natural face, in the original language in Greek, you would see the word genesea, right? Which is genesis. Right? Any time you look and see the word genesis in Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, Greek or Hebrew, you need to look at that word very, very intently and see it for what it is. Right? Anytime you see the word Genesis, it's talking about creation. It's talking about beginning. But not just creation or beginning. It's talking about natural and basic intent. 
Right? There is one person who Genesis is, right? Who truly Genesis is, who can create from nothing, and that's God, right? When, so a man, a person who is a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word, is like someone who stares intently at their natural, their Genesis face in a mirror and sees who it is that God actually made them to be. It's like someone who looks at a mirror and sees the actual trueness of who it is that they're meant to be. There's a beautiful illustration in one of the uh, Harry Potter books about this. The Mirror of Erised, right? Maybe you remember this if you don't know the story, right? It, it's, a, it's a mirror. It's locked up in Hogwarts, and it's this big mirror sitting there, and it's Erised. Erised is just desire spelled backwards, right? So the idea is that if you stand in front of this, you will not see your reflection. Rather, you will see that which you most desire. And so different people stand in front of it at different points in time and see themselves on a, you know, in a great position of power or receiving fame and acclaim. Or, right, for, the, for Harry, he sees his family that's been taken away from him. Right? It's this kind of a mirror, this idea here, is that when I'm looking at it, I'm not seeing an actual true reflection. Because if I'm coming to this mirror and I'm covered in the nastiness and the dirt and the filthiness of sin... And I come there and I look in God's mirror and say, God, show me that natural intent. Show me that Genesis face that you made. It is not a face that is dirty and nasty and covered in sin. It is a face of someone who has been clean. Right? Look at the words that, that James uses. He looks at himself, verse 24, and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of what? The law of liberty. The law of freedom. Not a law that constrains, not a law that says work harder, right? Not a law that says you've got to impress God, you've got to impress others, keep yourselves nice and religiously spotless, but a law of freedom. That's the revelation here. So when you look in this mirror, what you are seeing is a free you, a free you, free of self-deceit, free of self-justification, free of a need to be defensive, and free to be who God made you to be, which is where the doing versus the hearing comes in. Because the worst thing that we can do is start at a place of self-deceit and self-justification, go to God and say, God, I want to work harder for you. What do you want me to do? God's not going to give you an answer to that question. You know what you'll do then? You'll make up your own. And you know what that'll be? That'll be a self-deceived concept. And then you'll go about doing it and wonder why there's no joy in it and there's no meaning in it and, there's no perp- and, and, and you feel entrapped in bondage by it. That's because you're not walking in a law of liberty. Because the mirror that you're looking in is not going to lie to you. At no point in time is Jesus ever going to say, yeah, you know what? You're a little bit too much for me now. That, that mirror will always show to you the true face that God made you to be. Clean and spotless and beautiful. And you might, you might find other mirrors to look in, right? That tell you something wrong about yourself. Or you might say something wrong about yourself. Deceive yourself. And in so doing, not be a doer of the word. Not be a doer of what word? He's talking about this law of liberty. He's talking about the implanted word that's put within you. This is not a word of constraint. This is not a word of burden. This is a word of freedom and of life. This is the gospel of Jesus that says, come and have rest. It's come and join me in what I'm doing in my kingdom. Come and do. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer. What are you not hearing? You're not hearing that that face that you see, that's the real you. And so now go be you. Go do you, the real you. By all means, go and do that. But you can't do that because you're self-deceived. You have led yourself into deceit. You have told yourself lies about you. And you have agreed with those lies. And those lies have produced in your life self-justification that keeps you defensive and separate from everybody else. Living a life that is fractured and broken down. And it produces for us a complete loss of what it means to know freedom. In actuality, it is bondage. Self-justification and self-deceit kill. They kill relationships. There is a fantastic book by the Arbinger Institute called Leadership and Self-Deception. You should read it. 
You should go to Amazon today, and you should buy it, and you should read it. Because it's got fantastic concepts about these, fantastic ideas about these concepts. Here's just a few thoughts from that book. If people act in ways that challenge the claim made by a self-justifying image, then we see them as threats. If they reinforce the claim made by a self-justifying image, we see them as allies. If they fail to matter to a self-justifying image, we see them as unimportant. Whichever way we see them, they're just objects to us. So I go to a person, and I lay out my self-justification. I lay out my defensiveness. And if they're like, man, I think your self-justifications are awesome. The way you're presenting to me right now, even though it's not the real you, I just think that that's great. Right? That person then becomes my friend. Right? And on the other hand, if someone doesn't receive my self-justifications, my own self-deceit, the way that I present myself, then now nah, that's, that's somebody to stay away from. Right? Or someone to ignore if they just don't care. Right? No matter what happens, all the people I just interacted with are nothing more than objects to me, whereby I am seeking to justify my own self-justifications. And we do this in our most intimate and key relationships. This happens in our marriages. This happens in our closest friendships. Right? This happens in our families, where we just are looking for people to agree with us about who we think that we are. Since most of us have self-justifying images we're carrying around with us, most people are already in a defensive posture, always ready to defend their self-justifying images against attack. Right? So we live our lives assuming that we're self just assuming that we're justified, but in actuality it's self-justification, which is not real justification. But we have to walk around in our world as though we are justified. But at any point in time, I could be brought under accusation that my self-justification isn't legit, which, by the way, is not. When that happens, I've, I've got to be ready, right? And so I then live defensively. I then live defensively. And my whole goal is to structure myself with relationships around me where our defenses agree. And if our defenses can just agree, then everything can be okay. But we're still not whole. When I see the world in a self-justifying way, my view of reality becomes distorted. So that at the point that your spouse calls out your self-justifications, like, like my wife did, right? Here, my, my wife, Sherry loves me, right? I have no question that she loves me. Sherry's heart toward me is good. I got no question that Sherry's heart toward me is good. It's, it's how God made her, right? I mean, this is, this is our relationship. We're, and when she comes to me, about the way that I talked to our son, what she is looking for in that is for things to be as good as they can be, as healthy and as loving and full as they can be between my son and I as possible. And she noticed within me a thing that stopped that from happening. And so she said, that thing is something that you believe wrongly about yourself. Right? You weren't being you when you talked to him. That's reality. My wife loves me. She wants the best for me. She wants the best for my me and my relationship with my son. But if I live defensively, then the ability for her to say that, now that also comes into question. Because that's reality. But because I'm self-deceived and self-justifying, it's now not become reality. And now reality gets twisted and distorted. And I end up living a life that's actually in bondage. And that is not the law of liberty at all. Self-deceit continues in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. By the way, uh, let the word religion be what it's supposed to be here in the text. There's been a lot of stuff lately going around as far as like, I love Jesus, but I hate religion, so on and so forth. Yeah, me too. Um, religion, we're not talking about like a, uh, um, rules that you keep in order to earn your way to God. Right? This word that he's using here in the text just simply means this law of liberty, this way of thinking about God. Right? I still tell my unsaved friends that uh, uh, I'm not a religious person, which then when they find out I'm a pastor, just cracks them up. All right. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, there it is again. You see that? Because we generally think of deceit where? 
Right. You know why? Like, just a quick extrapolation. The enemy doesn't have access to your heart. The enemy doesn't have access to your heart. He doesn't have access to in there. He, he can speak to you. Right? He can get you to believe something wrong about God. He can mess with your head. He can get you to believe something wrong about yourself. But because Paul's talking, I'm Paul, because James is talking about self-deceit, guess who does have access to their heart? You. You have access to your heart. I have access to my heart. If I want this place to be deceived, I can get there. I can twist things and I can speak words and I can I can I can formulate inappropriate responses that keep me defensive even against me. Right? The true me. The me in the mirror. Right? So deceiving his own heart. That person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James defines religion here for us, right? He defines what it means for us to be in the faith together, and he defines it as visiting orphans and widows. This is a construct. This is a way, this is a picture. This is a way of thinking about things. Right? If your ministry does not consist of visiting orphans and widows then, and you're serving the kingdom, I mean, you shouldn't feel bad about that. Here's the point. Um, who most deeply feels a loss of love? A widow. Somebody whose husband has just died right, is going to feel a loss of love in such an acute way. Right? Who else feels in the most acute sense of a loss of love? A child without a father or a mother, an orphan. A child whose parents have been stripped from them. That child is going to feel such an acute and deeply painful loss of love. This is a construct. This is a way of thinking about it. Religion that is pure and undefiled is this. It is pouring God's love into people who need God's love. Pouring God's love into people who need God's love. Right? Visiting orphans and widows. That, that, that should be what your ministry definitely consists of. That should be what all of our ministries definitely consist of. That should be the way that we live in our world. Pouring God's love and being a channel of God's love to people. When you and I live defensive, self-deceived, and self-justified, right, that dams up the river. Because when we live self-deceived and self-justified, then we are living as orphans ourselves. And we sure as heck aren't going to give somebody else God's love when we so desperately need it ourselves. So every ounce of God's love that comes to us, that he's calling us to channel somewhere else, gets sopped up and mopped up and dammed up behind this big, huge wall that is our self-deceit, that is our self-justifications. And we can, be, we can be busy as a beaver or we can be you know, lazy and just laying around. doesn't really matter. What God calls us to is to be in truth with him, believing what's real, not being deceived. And then when I look in that mirror and I see who I am, be a doer of that word and not a hearer only. What is the J in the mirror? Who is the J in the mirror? All right, the J in the mirror is someone who is loving. The J in the mirror is someone who is tender. The J in the mirror is someone who is humble. The J in the mirror is someone who is confident in God. That's who God made me to be. That's my identity in Christ. That's the J in the mirror. J, go be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Right? What he's going to get down to later on in chapter 2 is the J in the mirror is compassionate toward those around him. So when I see a brother in need or a sister who has less, right, my heart is moving in compassion and I step toward that need, being a channel of God's love. That's the J in the mirror. That's the real J. J, do that. Go be that. Don't just hear that. Right? Don't just hear that and then go back out here and live in this sin-stained, you know, muck-filled place where you're just deceiving yourself and self-justifying everybody you get in contact with. Go be that. Go be honest. Go be brave. Go be real. Go be authentic. Go be genuine. Right? Be who you are. Be a doer of the implanted word in your heart, not just a hearer. That's who God made you to be. You were made to live in truth. You were made to live in freedom. You were made to live with the perspective of yourself that God has of you. So receive his word for you today. Go be you.
in the power of Jesus' name and through the beauty of his gospel, go be you. And speaking of Jesus, I mean, now there's somebody who's not self-deceived, right? Anybody ever see Jesus get defensive? I mean, I mean, what confidence did Jesus walk in? Right? The Son of God looks in the mirror and he sees the Son. And you know what he turns around and says to his world? I'm the Son. <laughs> I'm the Son. The Son of Man says this. The Son of God is this. The Son of this. The, uh, I mean, everywhere Jesus goes, he's declaring his sonship. He's walking in it. He looks in that mirror. And, and you ever see how much he goes back to the mirror? All Jesus ever wants to do is get away from these people. Right? Jesus, what do you want to do today? Go to the mountain. Can we go there with you? No. What's at the mountain? Dad's at the mountain. What's dad going to do? Dad's going to love on you. Right? Dad's going to say, come look in the mirror. Let me show you your deepest desire. Let me show you your deepest desire. Because when God looks at us, you know who he sees? He sees the righteousness of his son. He sees Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the law of liberty. That's the law of freedom. That Jesus died and was buried and rose again so that you and I can walk in newness of life, in freedom, away from all of the things that want to deceive us and pull us away. James says, look in that mirror. Who do you see? Who does God see in that mirror? Go do that. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Be like Jesus, who believed who he was and who lived from that spot in the truth of God's word, whole and at rest. Go be you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word to us. God, keep us from self-deceit. Keep us living with such a high and lofty view of you that we are drawn up away from the deceits, away from the entanglements of the world, away from all of the things and all of the words that want to tell us what is wrong about or what is false about you, what is false about who you are and how you work, what your government is, what your economy is, and who you've made us to be, who we are as your children, and how we are to walk and live in that. God, we so deeply need your cleansing. God, we so deeply need your perspective. Draw us into you, into your ways, into your thoughts, into your words. Root and ground us, God, in the implanted word that is within us and lead us more deeply into the law of liberty. Yeah, show us, God, our self-deceits and may we forsake them. Show us, God, our points of self-justifications and keep us, God, as people who are justified by you and confident in you. Yeah, we worship you, God. We thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus. Fit us to be the people that you made us to be. Keep us ever before you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a really interesting thing to do is to um, get with somebody that you really trust and love, um, a really good friend, your spouse, um, you know, somebody that, that you know loves you and who you love. And they just simply ask, where are my defenses? Where, where, where are my defenses? And then see if you want to get defensive. <laughs> right? And yeah, it's, it's an interesting exercise. And, um, and it can be a really enlightening way to begin to engage this concept um, of what it means to be you and the things that keep you from being you. God, thank you for our time together this morning, for your word, for your gospel. We agree with the words of the song that we just sang. Like you, you are holy other. Who is there like you? Thank you, God, that you have set us free in Jesus, and we are trusting in you. God, we cannot do this transformative work. Right? We, we do not have the power. So come, Holy Spirit, into us. Come into us and change us. Enlighten us. 
Bring us revelation. Bring us grace. Bring us truth. And so may you, my brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, may you receive the implanted word that is in you. And may you be free. Amen and amen. Thanks for being here today. Go with God.